0: To another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Yes, it's another uh, another episode brought to you by Zoom and the marvels of modern technology. Uh, David and I. David, you are in Nashville, I think. You're I am in, the in studio Nashville with Rex, aren't you? I
1: am. I am in the studio with Rex today. So okay,
0: yeah, beautiful. And I'm out here in Colorado. We're only a time zone apart, but seems like world away. Um, I have, it's the new year. It's 2020. Can you believe it?
1: No, no. I mean, uh, I, I can't, no, I can't. I thought we'd have flying cars by now. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Let me see. I had flying cars once, but it was totally by accident. It didn't fly very far. Um <laughs> So did you do some new year reassessment? Did you realign the calendar? Did you take a look at your daily schedule? Uh, Well, you know what, Nate,
1: I, and I've, I've said this before, I am not a big guy on res news resolutions. Right. I feel like those were made to be broken and uh, you know, the sooner the better in some Mm -hmm, cases, mm -hmm. but um, I, what I have done is I have um, I, I am trying to live more intentionally, right? And maybe that is a resolution and I'm just, uh, you know, in old language, but, um, I am trying to live more intentionally. And one of the ways I'm trying to do that is with structure. Okay. Um, I'm trying to really live a more structured life in that. I mean, yeah, we all have schedules and we go to work every day at certain times and have things that we have to do and people mm-hmm. to see and all this kind of stuff. But, um, but, but to have a, um, more of a life where uh, the self-care is intentionally uh, inserted into my day routine calendar, because if I wait for it to happen, it will not. Yes. Um, Uh, and uh you know by the end of the day i 'm too tired and don 't care and i um, i 'm ready to check out and yeah all yeah, of that yeah. so i 'm trying to i 'm trying to get more intentional with the way that I implement structure into my life and I remember when I was uh really early in my sobriety and that was so important. And that's what everybody kept stressing to me was, you've got to have a structured life. You've got to know what you're going to do when you get up, you've got to know when you're going to get up, you've Mm -hmm. got to, um, you know, have these practices and it's been really easy to kind of get into a, uh, a place where those take a real backseat to the, uh, what I think is urgent and all of that. So my thing, I think this year is really trying to implement, um, a, a, uh, structure and intentional, uh, a life of intentionality.
0: So yeah, yeah. What about you? Well, I'll tell you, this is a lifelong struggle. It's a big part of my recovery is making peace with structure. You know, I, I think that my addiction developed largely in reaction to, um, a life in which I felt overly controlled, mm-hmm. Right. So I, I, I felt like I was told not only how to behave, but what to feel. Uh, and so my addict found sneaky ways around that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't like to be controlled. Mm -hmm. And I, I, in fact, I so dislike being controlled that self-control feels stifling. Right. Uh, You see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I was dedicated to always keeping all of my options open throughout the day. Right. Right. Uh, so I lived, uh, you know, a very spontaneous life. I'm always up for something anytime, you know. Uh, I was the opposite of the rigid, highly structured person. Yeah. And so just making life up as I go along. Mm-hmm. So recovery... Introduced me to a new way of life, a different way of living in which I'm still, uh, I'm not being controlled. I'm setting my own priorities, but I'm also accepting the limitations of my humanity. The fact that I can't do all things well, and I can't be, uh, I can only be one place at one time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, You know, it it takes some real humility and a realistic attitude to accept the fact that um, I have limited capabilities, a limited amount of time throughout the day, and and now to take charge and intentionally decide where I am going to apportion my energy. What are my priorities? What am I going to do first? What am I going to do second? Um, And you know, so one of the things that my first sponsor did that was so helpful was he introduced me to a structured life uh, yeah, yeah, and I'll never forget him saying, you know, boring is good. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I have told clients that uh, you are going to have to learn how to be bored.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah.
1: Um, I still have
0: the capacity to blow the structure up from time to time. And I don't oh, think, yeah. right. I think from, uh, I can't be so rigidly structured that I, that, um, I can't do anything spontaneous.
1: Right. But we were, but, but we're not leaving our lives up to guesswork anymore. That leaves us with unaccountable, um, g- big unaccountable gaps that, uh, often leave it room for us to, uh, revisit old behaviors.
0: Yeah. 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 So. Well, um, it does seem to me that, uh, recovery, for most of us is very much uh, learning, relearning how to live. It's learning a new way of life. Right. Uh, and that can take all kinds of forms. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah.
1: When one of the things too, you know, Nate, that I love about the podcast getting to do the podcast is that we meet people who have a variety of ways mm-hmm. that they have approached sobriety. Um, maybe not every single one of them would be one we'd want to uh, feel uh, uh, like we were endorsing or rubber stamping for ourselves. But there, um, there are a variety of thoughts and ways to approach um, getting healthy. And it's really interesting to hear what uh, is working uh, out
0: there. OK, so you found us a guest who is taking some novel approaches, thinking outside the box, mm-hmm. uh, and helping especially men and women in opioid recovery Right, uh, to reclaim their lives uh, and to get some distance from the tyranny of the addiction. Right. Uh, fascinating conversation that you uh, were actually present for, weren't you? I was. I was. <laughs> Yet again.
1: Yet again. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure. You know, has your wife ever said to you, uh, I feel like you're not seeing me. Yeah. yeah. I feel yeah, like yeah. you're not hearing me. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't know. It's going to be very, it's, it'll be interesting around our house if Allie listens to these last two <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 we, we don't want to give her more material but that's it that's good yeah. <laughs> anyway we got a great conversation coming up with a fascinating guest stick with us you're not going to regret it we'll be back in a minute on the positive sobriety podcast Welcome back on the Positive Sobriety Podcast, and our guest today, uh, another fellow uh, brought to us by David Hampton, is Matthew Finch, a uh, strategic intervention coach with Opiate Addiction Support, a blogger and an expert, somebody with a great story in recovery. Thanks so much for joining us today, Matthew. My pleasure. Really excited to be here. Great. Yeah, glad to have you uh so uh we really like our listeners to get to know our guests we like to rewind at the beginning of a of an episode uh and uh, have you described for us if you will matthew what brought you into the field how did you wind up where you are <laughs> well what brought me
2: into the field was in-depth personal research for almost two decades <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it basically started off where I I was a straight A student. Uh, My friends would try after school, junior year of high school, or sorry, sophomore year, they would try to get me to go surfing and smoke weed and do all this stuff. And so I said, I have to do my homework first. Then when I'm done with my homework, then I can go surfing, but I'm not going to do any drugs. Drugs are bad. Okay. And so finally after, you know, halfway through my sophomore year, I finally gave in and Used the gateway drug cannabis for the first time, uh-huh. and you know from then on I was just a stoner for a few years. Fast forward to 22, and that's when I really started binge drinking. Uh-huh. Uh, within about a year of drinking, with I, I had a new group of friends, and they were drinkers. So that's what I did too, and I loved it. Uh-huh. Alcohol gave me confidence, energy, made me able to flirt with girls, sleep with girls, be the life of the party. Um, and so it was actually really fun for a while. Then it got so bad where I was drinking all day, every day, barely consuming mm. any food. You know, I would probably average about a half of a sandwich or a slice of pizza a day. Yeah. And I was just drinking nonstop all day, every day until finally my body couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't get any more alcohol in. I just vomited up. Yeah. And that night, I went through my first time going through delirium tremens. I had
1: Mm, shaking
2: hallucinations. Like it was like I could feel things and I could see things in the bedroom and I could feel them even though they weren't really there, you know, come to find out later on that you can die from delirium tremens. But I was such a a rookie to alcohol abuse and to addiction and withdrawal. I had no idea, but you know, then alcohol, I just kind of went on and off to AA meetings. Yeah. All of my 20s. And basically, my main thing was always I had social anxiety, I had generalized anxiety, and I'd have intermittent depression. Uh-huh. I always felt like I, I was never comfortable on my own skin. I know that's probably a, a real common phrase. Yeah, but it's true. true. I just I felt like everyone else had something, and I didn't have that. I wasn't normal. I didn't know what it was. But drugs made me feel like everyone else made me feel – you know, like that thing was missing, Uh, come to find out many years later that drugs affect your neurotransmitters. And when you're deficient in those neurotransmitters and drugs, correct that imbalance. Well, that, of course, it makes you feel normal. But this was all stuff I had to learn much later. So let's see, fast forward to my early, I was uh, 30 years old, I just had a newborn baby. Mm -hmm. I had a daughter named Willow. And at this point, I was doing good. I I had managed to really You know, I was one of those drinkers that wasn't, like, uh, just a habitual alcoholic. I was a binge drinker. So I would go weeks and weeks or months and months or even a year longer without drinking. Then I would go on these binges a weekend, a week. They were never super long. I mean, that one time I went through delirium tremens, it was several months long. But other than that, I was just kind of, like, usually a non-drinker. So at that point, I was living in upstate New York, and I had really got a handle on my drinking. I was really responsible. I had a job. Things were going good. But then my daughter was born and I was a single dad. I found out that uh, my, the, the baby's mama had actually not only cheated on me with the guy I knew about, but she had cheated on me with a whole bunch of other people. Mm-hmm.
1: Wow, and
2: one, one of them was with a couple. It was a, a threesome. She was pregnant with our child at the time, a couple months pregnant. And she got drunk and she slept with uh, a friend of mine and a friend of mine's girlfriend, who was also a friend of mine. so that 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 stab in the heart was crazy, so that just got my addiction harder than ever before to mask that. Yeah. so I was working at a restaurant six days a week, and I needed it was a fast-paced New York restaurant. So I needed energy to work, energy to take care of my daughter. I was a single dad, so I needed lots of energy. She was waking up all night. Yeah, And I had the generalized anxiety and social anxiety, depression during the day. Then I had this, all these wounds um, in my heart and soul. And so was, all of a sudden I got, I fell in love with opiates. Yeah. Somebody had some Percocets and I bought some and I had tried them many times in my twenties, but never got addicted
1: mm-hmm. for some
2: reason. I think it was because I was going through so much emotional pain and loneliness yeah. this time when I took them, they're, they're physical painkillers by prescription, but they're amazing emotional painkillers yeah. too. Yeah. So, and so I realized my emotional pain, gone, depression, gone, generalized anxiety, gone, social anxiety, gone, and alcohol doesn't make you lose your, you know, get out of it. doesn't make you dehydrated
1: mm-hmm. or,
2: or the, the pills didn't. The so pills, the pills, yeah. unlike alcohol, didn't give me any of those things where I would act stupid and, I'd wake up and instead of being hung over on the pills, I'd wake up and feel great. So two months of using those daily, though, large amounts, it got to. Then I went through opioid withdrawal the first time, and I thought I was just having a panic attack. So that's really where things escalated. And, you know, for the next two and a half years, I was mostly addicted to opiates. Sometimes I'd get a, a week or a couple of months was the longest, but I'd always go back because of the post-acute withdrawal symptoms, right? But, you know, the underlying uh, mental disorders would come back, the underlying trauma from the past, my childhood, adolescence and relationships. So it all just came back and like I said, I never felt normal so I just continued to go back because I knew one thing in the world that made me feel good, which was opiate pills. Yeah. So yeah. it got all the way till the very end of my addiction I was using one to two grams of heroin a day. I was smoking black tar, chasing Uh, the dragon on aluminum foil.
1: mm -hmm. Uh,
2: The kind of funny part about that, however, is (laughs) so I was living with my parents at this time, had moved back to California, still had my kid, but I was in school to be a certified drug and alcohol counselor at the time. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I was going to this this, uh, trade school called Mueller College. Uh It's a private school, so you pay, I think it was $12,000. And then it's a year-long certificate program to become a counselor. And it was a KDAX certification, so it was actually a really good one. And you didn't have to pay the money up front. You could get financial loans and then start making you know monthly payments once you got a, a job. Mm-hmm. So here I am smoking, alum- smoking heroin off aluminum foil right before I drive to class to become a drug and alcohol counselor. And I know there was about 13 people in my class, and I know I wasn't the only one. On dr- still on drugs that was trying to become a counselor. Yeah. And so eventually what, what really did it was a month into school, it was a year-long program, a month into school of, you know, being a heroin addict and going to school, uh, my dad caught me because I had been hiding it from my parents. I was taking a nap on the couch. Of course they suspected things. Sure. And so he, he checked out my phone, went through my text messages, <clears throat> and found uh, text messages between my dealer and I. And so he, he woke me up. He was pissed off. He said, what's this? What's this? And so I knew the gig was up. And he said, if you want to live here, you can't be on this. So wow. I, called, I called my doctor right away. I, for some reason, I thought that all doctors prescribed Suboxone, which is a popular opiate replacement medication that prevents withdrawal symptoms and cravings. Right. I had been on it in New York uh, for some of that time, but I was buying it from drug dealers. So it was unprescribed, but it worked really well. So the next day, luckily, I get in to see my doctor. But it turns out that he doesn't prescribe Suboxone. But he did prescribe me something else. He, for some reason, when I told him I was addicted to heroin, he prescribed me two gigantic bottles of methadone tablets. Oh, wow. Which is the full agonist, the strongest opiate replacement medication there is. And then on top of that, he prescribed me this gigantic bottle of 10 milligram Valium tablets, diazepam. Oh, So methadone and Valium, the combination of those is potentially very deadly. And he told me to, he told me take as much as you need of both of these throughout the day. Um, oh, wow. Every couple of hours, take some to avoid withdrawal and cravings. He said, I've helped a lot of people get off heroin this way. So <laughs> I was like, this is so unexpected and this is, I left there. I went to the pharmacy. Once I got those big giant bottles of drugs, I was shaking them. And of course, me being such a drug addict that loves, those are my two favorite things on, on the planet at that point, mm-hmm. opioids and benzos. And yeah, now I have yeah. prescriptions for lots of them and they're powerful. So basically 40, less than 48 hours after I got that prescription, my mom found me lying on my back in my bedroom. She was upstairs, and then she had this crazy intuition, premonition, and she heard this voice saying, go check on Matthew, he could be dying. Mm. She goes down. My mom's really intuitive. Walks downstairs, there I am on my back, face is gray, my lips are blue, there's vomit trickling all down everywhere. And she came in and noticed that I wasn't breathing. And so what had happened was, when I got those prescriptions, of course, I didn't take just a little bit to avoid withdrawal and cravings. I took a lot because I wanted to get high. Right. Yeah. That's why usually you're supposed to go to a methadone clinic to get methadone, and they dispense it there. Then you have to earn take comes. But here I am with this right. two of this this potent combination. So, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me, and the reason is is this: my mom called the the ambulance. And they got there and they resuscitated me with giving me a naloxone shot, which is an opioid antagonist that put me into instant opioid withdrawal, thereby saving my life, rushed me to the hospital. I wake up in the ICU with a breathing tube in my throat. Uh, It it took me actually a few days before I remember anything, before I came to consciousness where now I can remember back. But I was in the hospital for a week. They had just barely saved my life. The doctor told my mom that if the EMT had got there one or two minutes later, I would have been dead. Wow. Wow. The only reason they got there when they did is because she had this voice tell her to go check on me. Yeah. So I got a second chance at life. Basically, I left the hospital. um, And it was something like, as soon as I left the hospital, I, I realized, okay, you've been selfish your whole life, but now you have a kid. She was 18 months old at the time. I said, this is going to interfere. Like you almost left her without a dad and her mom was addicted to heroin too at the same time. So it was crazy. So basically that woke me up. I went through something that uh, later on I learned is called post-traumatic growth instead of post-traumatic stress disorder. I had post-traumatic growth. So I basically got this new sense of purpose in life since, you know, you come that close to death and it changes you. And I just got into exercise, uh, supplement supplements, nutrition, lots of personal development, got back into music and surfing. And I was doing really good in school, became a drug and alcohol counselor. Um, and then after a few years of being a counselor, I just Mm. knew it was time to move on and start my own company to help people where I could have full creative control Mm. rather than just, you know, you're pretty limited as a counselor at a a treatment program you have to really go by you can't really talk about too much stuff other than just addiction everything else is out of your scope of practice Mm -hmm. So yeah i became a certified coach through tony robbins company um went to other trainings on like qigong and food uh, high phytochemical food healing Mm -hmm. and just started com. started blogging and youtubing and then recently podcasting and
1: yeah. And Benef- we should point out, Matt, uh, we should point out that you partner with Chris Scott, who yeah. uh, was also on our program uh, just a few months ago uh, with Fit Recovery. Uh, and you guys have a podcast called Elevation Recovery. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that is. This is a cool story, too, how Chris, Chris contacted me about three years ago. He emailed me and said, hey, could I write a guest blog post for opiate addiction support? And so I checked out his blog, fitrecovery.com and I was like, This guy's a great writer. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, Yeah, sure. And so he wrote a great article for me. And then I was really interested in him. I said, Hey Chris, are you making you know, are you making any money with your book and on your website? He's like, Man, I've been doing this for two years now. I've written over a hundred articles. He said I haven't made I can't remember if he hadn't made any money or had barely made any sales. He said I was right about to quit when I learned about guest blogging. So I figured that would be I would try that out first. And then if that didn't work, then I quit. Mm -hmm. And so I told him I'd just mentor him through email and I would train him on how to do all the stuff that I do on opiate addiction support, start a coaching program, create coaching packages and prices, make an online course, you know, be an affiliate marketer, all this stuff. He's like, man, I would, I would love that. So then I mentored him and he grew up, he grew his business hardcore. And now there's all sorts of stuff that he teaches me. And so finally, about two years ago, I asked him to partner up on this new business venture. He said, that sounds awesome. And so all I had was the name and the idea. And the two of us came up with everything in combination doing strategy calls. And so, yeah, we just launched it. I think July 1st, we launched the podcast. Yeah, Chris is him and I are perfect for each other. I mean, they say you're supposed to hire someone, or not hire, but group up with a partner that's like, has skills and that you don't have and your opposites. Right. <laughs> We're so similar, it's ridiculous. As as <laughs> how we view the world and addiction and everything. But
1: Well, Matt, tell us a little bit about what makes the way you approach people... Uh, with, um, I, I know you deal primarily, you personally deal primarily with people that have opiate and opioid uh, issues, but what is, um, what is the way you guys look at this and view this that may be a little more alternative than uh, something that somebody would get in a traditional or what I, we might call a more traditional uh, paradigm?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, it's not even anything that uh, that I created or anything but it's really I had there's great pioneers in the field of addiction recovery right now and so I guess the traditional model is if you were to go get traditional help you'd either go to a, a detox place and then inpatient or a detox and outpatient or for some people don't even need detox and they would just straight go to inpatient or outpatient mm-hmm. They'd get group counseling probably some individual counseling uh, maybe a, a psychiatrist to help them out. And then they'd have be sent to AA meetings or NA meetings, Right. Um, maybe go to a sober living house after that,
0: mm-hmm. which is all
2: great. All those modalities were great for a lot of people. They've mm-hmm. probably helped more people than any of the other treatment modalities,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, at least because they're so widespread. But you know, there's, there's pioneers in the field of biochemical recovery. And so I basically just view addiction as a biopsychosocial spiritual disorder. Mm-hmm. And the first word in that is bio, which stands for biological biological, mm-hmm. or biochemical. Um, so drugs and alcohol are physical substances that cause radical physical changes to a physical organ, the brain. Mm-hmm. And it creates such bad changes that once you stop taking the substance, you're going to go through a withdrawal syndrome. And due to the long-term repeated administration, your brain chemistry has become really, really deficient in certain hormones and excessive in other hormones. And so when you try to stop using drugs, you're depressed, anxious. You could have all these different symptoms, sometimes very long-term, several months to six months to a year longer. So I don't care how many group therapies you go to, how many individual counseling sessions you have, how many awesome AA meetings. If your brain is that messed up, It's going to be really difficult. It's going to be a lot more difficult than it has to be. So bio being the first word in that, I just tell people on how to address the brain as the foundation of treatment. That's really it. It's just basically putting the biochemical foundation of treatment, if you imagine a pyramid, biochemical foundation, which means you're healing and rebalancing the addicted brain with nutrients, nutrition, exercise, supplements. There's so many different things. Deep mm-hmm. tissue massage, the list goes on and on. Right, then you got right. the psychological, which that's where the counseling and the uh, fellowship kind of stuff can come in, whether it's at a AA fellowship or with your own family fellowship of people that love each other. And the social and the spiritual. So that's really that's really the only different thing that we're doing as far as the main thing. And then I guess also we view it more of kind of like a, you know, in, in traditional AA, if there was like a, someone that's really into it, they'd say, you can't do it alone. And yeah, that's probably right. You probably can't do it alone. But just because someone doesn't go to meetings, doesn't mean they're doing it alone. If they even have one person that knows about it, or even if people don't know about it, but they've got healthy relationships and, you know, good connections with people, then you're not doing it alone. So we kind of differ on some of the beliefs. Basically, my main tenant is there are many paths to recovery and so i don't think that the way that chris and i teach is necessarily the best way and i certainly don't think it's for everybody probably not even for the majority because it takes you know this we're kind of more of a self-directed recovery Self, it's a lot like smart recovery self-management and recovery training Right, right so the way that we both did it without even knowing each other and a lot of people do it this way is basically their own version of smart recovery or rational recovery. It's just kind of a self-directed thing to where, Okay. Drugs or alcohol or both are screwing up my life. I don't like how it's made me and the results I've got. I want to live this different life. How do I do that? And you create some type of plan and you just get started and you just keep going and you just try to keep making progress in in life. Mm -hmm. So that's basically how Chris and I view it for sure. Yeah. The, my main thing is there's many paths. So AA is great for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. but also there's a lot of people that no matter how long they go, they just never really feel like it's a good fit. And I think it's really good for people to listen to their intuition too, really, Mm -hmm. really listen to that. So that's what I did. Listen to my intuition this whole way
1: through. Yeah. Now how, um, uh, How do you encourage community or do you, uh, with, with people, in other words, you were saying, you know, by doing it with, with other people, the way you have it, uh, that you're not doing it alone. Um, but do you encourage people to have some type of, um, Recovery network of friends or recovery you know because most of the time our what we call our our normal and I hate that word, but you know our our non recovery friends don't understand some of our own um, predicaments in in uh, relationship to how we view the world at times coming out of uh, addiction, whatever that uh, term might mean to everybody so what how do you encourage uh, fellowship with one another?
2: Yeah, I, I tell people right off the bat, if someone hires me to be their coach or if they ask me a, a, a question, a YouTube comment, I think probably the main thing in the world for anyone to get help, to be able to do it the right way, at the That's beginning, right. it's so important to have a support group. So when when someone, this is one of the first questions I ask people when they have their initial consultation with me. A lot of them have boyfriends or girlfriends, husbands or wives, and a lot of them, their husbands, wives, boyfriends or girlfriends know that they're addicted,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: but but a lot of them, they don't know. And that was me too when I was addicted to opiates. My girlfriend (sighs) I lived with didn't know I hid it from her. Right. So every time I'd try to quit and I would hide it from her too, which made it really difficult and so I always encourage them, hey, just if they, if they don't know, I say, you know what, it feels horrible to tell them because you just feel so much shame and guilt and you feel like you're not worthy of love. But telling these people, it's so much better to have the loved one support other, rather than keep it to yourself. So number one key, the support group. And it's, that's the only reason I was able to quit uh, drugs this last time, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. my parents knew. So then my my girlfriend, everyone found out basically before I was hiding my pill, then heroin addiction. And yeah. I could, years and years hiding it and I couldn't get off. As soon as the gig was up, my parents both knew, everyone knew. And then so they all gave me love and support, non-judgment, accountability. And all of a sudden I, I was able to do it. So I think it's really important at the beginning. I don't necessarily think at least for I think it comes down to personality. So I'm the type of person that, you know, after about three to six months of all that support, I just took off and never looked back. But I'm probably, you know, not like your. I wouldn't recommend lots of people do that. I'd recommend for the first at least year or two, be surrounded in that type of love and non judgment, and um, I, I think it really does help to have people understand you. So when people A lot of the clients say, Hey, you're the only person I've ever told about this. It feels so good to talk to someone that actually knows what this feels like. Mm -hmm. That's really important. I think that's very important. And if people can do that, um, seek that out. I tell people about there's lots of online Facebook groups. If they don't want to, a lot of them don't want to go to meetings. There are, you know, probably one or two out of 10 clients likes to go to meetings, which is, you know, which is great. But a lot of them, I've tried it. I hate that. I'm not going back. So I say there's smart recovery. There's online Facebook groups. Those, those Facebook support groups that are free mm-hmm. uh, They're I don't know if you guys have been in any of those, but some of those groups are very supportive. Some mm-hmm. of them are really crazy with a lot of mean people just, you know, sending yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, but there's some really great groups. So I tell people, if you don't want to do in-person stuff, you can just join a Facebook group mm-hmm. and you can, you know, Get support from people and support people. It's not as good as in person, obviously. It's right. Not as powerful as it when there's something about that person-to-person connection. So yeah, I think that support and being around others like that is mm-hmm. is really important for most people. For most mm-hmm. people,
1: I'd say that's yeah, a good one. yeah. And we're learning a lot about the power of even virtual meetings. Um, Nate has um, a, a group of men that uh, uh, in a in a group called Samson Society that. Um, support one another most most of them in um, sexual recovery, but um, there is a virtual meeting going all the time somewhere, and um, they've created networks of people that they can go online and just talk with somebody that may, they've probably never met and they may never meet again or may, may never talk to again, but in that moment it's a, a supportive empathetic witness you know to their pain and and to what they need to hear in that moment so
2: Yeah, that's great. And that's the thing that there's, there's many paths to recovery, right? There's there's so many options nowadays. Like the way I really get my, uh, my fill of this stuff is, you know, Chris is my business partner and we both share the same type of past as far as addiction. Um, A few of the clients that I've had, well, two of them that I coached long-term and we just had so much in common. Once the coaching ended, we just became really close friends. So like, there's two clients now that I still keep in contact with mm-hmm, and they yeah. are both addicted to opiates too. So I've got Chris and these two other guys. And that's just, you know, my main people, there's people that live in the same town as me. There's family members that have overcome addiction. Mm-hmm. So I'm really blessed in that I've got such amazing and close connections with just great people that gave up addiction and now they're living empowered inspirational yeah. lives. So, yeah, I mean, if I didn't have that, if I didn't have anyone like that, Uh, I'm not sure if I would still be clean eight years later. Well, I don't like, I shouldn't use the word clean because that's another thing. That's probably the main thing is there's the total abstinence way to where if you're addicted to a drug, then you go to meetings and then you never use any substance ever again. Mm -hmm. So that's not what I do. I, you know, I'll have alcohol every once in a while, but you know, I've had the same bottle of wine for a few months on top of my fridge. Uh, yeah. cannabis is legal in California. So I'll do cannabis every once in a while, but it's usually high CBD.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and there's like various nootropic products. And so I don't view myself as in clean or even being in recovery. I just kind of view myself as I was a hardcore polysubstance addict for almost 20 years. I almost died. I had post-traumatic growth at, uh, after realizing I almost left my daughter without a dad for whole life. I radically went in the opposite direction of disease towards biopsychosocial spiritual health.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I did so much work on myself that now, you know, I don't, I don't have any desire to use opiates or benzos or anything like that. But, um, now it's just, I, I'm not perfect. Now I've got all sorts of other issues in life. Right. So the addiction's done, no more of that. I went through workaholism. I went through a little bit of sex addiction. I went through, I wouldn't call it shopping addiction. Um, I was narcissistic for about a year and a half heavily. Um, But so it's funny because life, you just keep having challenges, whether it's internal or external. So yeah, that's kind of how I view uh, addiction and recovery. Like there's, there's so many mental models to go by, you Mm -hmm. know, like, it's just really about coming up with a mental model or copying someone else's mental model that resonates or works for you. And then just rolling with it through life. I really feel like our mental models control what works for us and what doesn't. But yeah. yeah. So <laughs> we, I just went off on a tangent there, but
1: that's great. Relevant.
0: Hey, uh, Matthew, I'd like to ask you a, a little bit more about the uh, biological the fact that you see uh, the biological issues is fundamental. We're dealing with physical damage to a physical org- organ. Uh, we want to treat the brain right in order to improve our chances for long-term sobriety. Uh, if I'm understanding it correctly,
2: yeah, that's it completely. I mean, one of my favorite quotes in the world is by Dr. Daniel Amen, who's my favorite psychiatrist on the planet. He does these SPECT brain scans on his patients. And he's looked at over 100,000 brain scans, uh, which, which they check for blood flow in the brain, not sure. the physical areas. And so what he says, the quote that he says is, when your brain works right, you work right. When your brain doesn't work right, you don't work right. And the truth is that the, the nutrients in our soil, the nutrients in the soil that 100 years ago used to be just so nutrient dense. So all the food that we ate, even up until 50, 60 years ago, we had such nutrient dense food and, you know, people were eating whole foods, right? What was the diet? Mm -hmm. Yeah, It was whole foods. There was none of these packaged foods, processed foods, additives, chemicals. It was a hundred percent whole food diet uh, for the most part with foods grown on nutrient rich soil now fast forward to 2020 and the nutrients density in the soil is pathetic even with organic food so we're not getting the nutrients that our brain needs through food even if in my opinion even if someone's eating a really clean really good diet there's probably still not getting the amount of nutrients that their brain needs to thrive at least Mm -hmm. due to that nutrient deficiency so that's why supplements are so popular but most people don't take supplements or if they do They take like a multivitamin and a fish oil from Walmart, which probably don't have any nutrients in it at all. So bottom line is that there's a mental health epidemic right now, an obesity epidemic, an anxiety epidemic. There's so many different epidemics going on concurrently. And one of the root causes of all those is nutrient deficiencies in the brain Mm -hmm. that most people just don't realize because you can't see the brain. And when you go to a doctor or a psychiatrist, tell them you have anxiety or overweight, nobody looks at your brain. No one looks at your organs for that type of stuff. So I think since it's invisible, a lot of people don't understand how important it is, but our brain, the basically what it comes down to is the health of our brain determines everything It determines how we view the world. Um, So like, let's say for instance, somebody is like me, they're taking opiates for a few years, but that's all they're taking. When they take opioids repeatedly daily um, these things interfere with your brain's ability to produce its own dopamine and endorphins which are you know some euphoria neurotransmitters neurochemicals and then because they give you these huge artificial rushes of those endorphins and dopamine after about a month or two and definitely longer um, your brain now can't produce those on its own and Mm -hmm. if you were to come off of opiates let's say a year later You come off of opiates, then all of a sudden you're going to go through a withdrawal syndrome, but worse than that, three or four day withdrawal syndrome is the long-term post-acute withdrawal syndrome, and that's the biochemical deficiency. So for instance, you're going to be unable, your brain's going to be unable to produce endorphins. So if you can't produce endorphins, then you're going to be way, way susceptible to emotional, mental, and physical pain. You're not going to have your endorphin shield for life and you're going to be just raw afraid. Oh my goodness gracious. And then with without any dopamine in your brain, you're going to be instead of feeling you know motivated and driven and happy, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to have so much fatigue. You're going to be depressed or even have severe anhedonia, which is the inability to feel pleasure. Right. And so sometimes left untreated, I've seen people still experience these symptoms coming off opioids or other drugs for like six months to a year and longer.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So if they're going to tr- treatment, they're going to meetings, that's going to help the psychological and the social aspect and meetings can also take care of the spiritual. So three out of four, right? Mm-hmm. But if they were to correct their brain chemistry using, Either nutrition, supplementation, exercise. Maybe they go to something called NAD plus brain restoration therapy. Right. Maybe they go do this some crazy alternative thing in Mexico called ibogaine therapy, which is this hallucinogenic drug that is said to actually repair your damaged brain chemistry to its pre-addiction state.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Or whether you do deep tissue massage, hot saunas, you know, ice cold showers. There's so many things you can do. To help to restore the neurotransmission that you are missing and help to decrease excess glutamate, decrease brain inflammation, decrease body inflammation. There's just so many things that make our brains unhealthy. And then when we add drugs and alcohol to that, that's just exacerbating our already deficient brain. And so that's why recovery is so I think that's the main reason why the relapse rates are so high. I don't think it's because you know, treatment models aren't effective. I think it's just because they're missing the biochemical component. So the things Mm -hmm. that they're doing are probably good, but until you get that brain working optimally, then people are like, Hey, I'm really enjoying this meeting. Wow. I feel, I feel good rather than sitting through a group session or something like that where they're, Mm -hmm. they feel depressed, anxious. They don't have any endorphins or dopamine. So of course Mm -hmm. they get cravings and they go relapse. And the counselor says, oh, they just weren't ready or they're not ready to be honest with themselves. And so my advice to them is, or what what's what's probably more truthful is their brain is so deficient in the right neurotransmitters and it's so excessive in things that are making their fight or flight system go. Right. Maybe they just need a heavy dose of brain healing and then this other stuff will will help them because it can only have moderate success at best all the mm-hmm. traditional treatment approaches without healing the brain so yep. they could yep. they could radically all these traditional treatment centers could radically increase their effectiveness if they learned about biochemical repair and had mm-hmm. an aspect of it but you know they make the same amount of money whether someone gets gets clean or not or actually they probably right. make more money when people relapse because oftentimes they'll go back to the same place because they feel comfortable there
1: yeah I'm told the average amount of times people might, uh, people who do go to treatment, uh, the average amount is about three before, uh, they really start to experience some long-term, um, change. Um, yeah, yeah, that's,
2: I heard, I've heard seven before. I've actually had people hire me that have gone 30 times or more.
1: Good night. 30
2: times or more. And these are people with like four decades, you know, of, yeah, years. yeah. When you hear some of these stories, it's just absolutely nuts, but yeah. So the traditional treatment programs, they get paid to treat people. They don't get paid to get results. Right. Right. Like right. They get their money regardless of what happens. And so, I mean, that's just the way it is, but
1: yeah. Yeah, well, Matt. A... Before we wrap up, I, w- I want to because we're going to have to um, we're going to have to wrap our time here in just a minute. Sure. But uh, I want you to let people know again how people can get in touch with the information you have, uh, mm-hmm. how they can follow you and Chris, um, and um, and and also uh, whether or not um, you have a network for them on your sites for them to seek support in. Uh, through either you all or people in the area. So how can people contact you guys and, um, and access what you have been talking about today?
2: Yeah, well, the best place to start is uh, on our podcast. So that's elevationrecovery.com. Right. And then elevationrecovery.com forward slash podcast. takes people to the podcast role. Um, if people are addicted to opioids, the best website for that is my site. So it's support.com. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the blog up at the top there. So I've got some free courses and my YouTube channel, actually op- the opiate addiction support YouTube channel. If people are addicted to opiates, that's actually probably the best resource on the internet, at least that I know of to help them. It's got, I just give every all of my best information away for free. Great. Um, and there's actually communities in those YouTube comments. If you look at all the YouTube comments, there's all the same people when I'm uploading new videos, um, and then Chris has courses and I have courses that people can enroll in and where there's support groups in there. So it's like mm-hmm. part of the course. Chris got Chris has a new Facebook page for his course, which is like a closed group for the members of his course. So uh, and then I recommend people also just go on Facebook and type in, you know, addiction recovery group then look at all the ones that come up and kind of feel a resonation intuition on which one to join because those ones are great. Yeah. Smart yeah. recovery, AA, rational recovery, celebrate recovery. You know, I just recommend people get educated really on all the stuff that's out there
1: yeah. and
2: choose the best fit for them.
1: Whether that's it's
2: great. whether it's coaching with a crazy recovery coach or going to, you know, IBO game clinic or going to a support group in person. It's just different mm-hmm. <laughs> strokes for different folks. Yeah. But yeah. Elevationrecovery.com uh, is where I'd start. Yeah. Great.
0: Well, this has been an entertaining and fascinating conversation. Can't thank you enough for taking some time out of your day to spend it with us, Matthew. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks. I had a blast and thank you guys too. Absolutely,
1: Matt. Thank you so much. All right,
0: listeners, stick with us. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast, and I uh, have really been challenged uh, as I'm thinking about this conversation, Nate, that we just had with with Matt, and um, just the, the variety of ways that um, research and uh, different modalities, treatment modalities, and mindsets, and value systems, and all of that are playing a, a role in a different um, in a different way, for many people, as they approach sobriety, especially with something as um uh potentially deadly as uh an opioid addiction, yeah yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, uh and I think it's good for us to maintain an attitude of humility um, you know it 's easy for us to say, "Look, I got sober this way mm-hmm. and so this is the way to get sober, right, right yeah uh, at the same time uh as the recovering person it's good for me to actually uh get out of the uh, i'll tell you what i slipped a lot in early recovery mainly because although i had a sponsor early on in in name only i kind of reserved the right to be my own sponsor and make mm-hmm. up my own uh recovery plan mhm uh you know, what I like about Matt is that uh, he stays in open conversation with a lot of people. He's right. not just he's not just uh, making up ideas out of his own head, but he's in conversation with other people
1: mm-hmm. and
0: is open to creative possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember early on where, you know, it was kind of like my personal private enterprise to create my own recovery program. hmm uh and that didn't work very well yeah
1: Right. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. I yeah. I my I did that uh program as well. I was sort of like the red lobster of uh um <laughs> recovery <laughs> programs. I I wanted this but not that and I'll take that platter, but you know, yeah, you yeah. can hold on to that and I'm not big on uh uh amends, but I I'll definitely, you know, come to your meetings.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um but I think one of the things that was interesting about Matt's conversation was that he has a lot of research that um points to the just reinforces that mind body um, yes connection yeah. again you know yeah. just going back to that um, staying uh, emotionally fit but also physically um, physically in tune with what your body uh, is doing what it needs what your brain needs um, all of that um, yeah. you know it's just it's it's all part of uh,
0: this multi-pronged approach yeah yeah this is a biological issue we're mm-hmm. you know that addiction resides in my brain which is an organ um, mm-hmm. and yeah it is amazing how an attention to uh, physical fitness and what we're you know nutrition and all that kind of stuff um, you know the direct impact upon our recovery from addictive behavior
1: yeah absolutely yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, well, uh, about time, I think, to wrap another episode, another helpful conversation. Thanks, David, by the way, for working so hard to connect us with such great guests. And looking ahead, Bob, we've got some fascinating people coming in to talk with us.
1: Well, you're welcome, and it's a a pleasure to get to find these people, and some of these suggestions come from listeners. So listeners, if there's someone that you have read or listened to or um, experienced in some way, and you'd like to... um, hear us engage uh, them in uh, our podcast, please let us know.
0: Yeah. You can reach us as always at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Well, that does it for another week. Until next time. I'm Nate. I'm David. We're your pals on the positive sobriety podcast. The positive sobriety podcast is recorded at crossroads for the nations in Brentwood, Tennessee, Live producer, Rick Schnelli. Music by Rick Schnelli. Theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, Hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett. Uh, Wardrobe (laughs) by Kathy Gifford.